from the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Alicia Sanchez. Those of you who have been sticking with the podcast for a while may recognize that name. She's been with us before a couple of times in the past. She is a colleague of mine. She is DAU's Games Czar. We have a dimension of games and simulation here at DAU. We have those kinds of elements throughout our products. And these days, Dr. Sanchez is focused on learning experience. I wanted to catch her thoughts on that subject. Dr. Sanchez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having me again. I'm thrilled to have you. And I'm just going to revert to the informal. You are Alicia to me in everyday life. Yes. So I'm going to dispense with formalities at this point. (laughs) But learning experience, people have been hearing it. And, you know, we are an industry that is fraught with buzzwords. So some of us greet these things with a measure of skepticism because we don't know where it originates. But I want to get your thoughts on what it is, how we're thinking about approaching it. To my mind, in design matters, everything is in the approach. You know, how we think about these things is more important than what we end up doing, you know, because it it just informs what we will do from a design standpoint. But this, to me, seems to put the learner right front and center. This is the learner's experience we're talking about. But let's just start right there, Alicia. What is learning experience? Sure. I think that that's really something interesting that we've been thinking about lately a lot at DAU, and I think a lot of others are. So there's there's sort of two things here for me. Because I'm games and simulations, I'm always focused heavily on experiential learning, right, Which which is different than the entire learning experiences. So when I say experiential learning, what I really mean is providing people with experiences within learning that they wouldn't otherwise have because it's either too expensive, it doesn't happen frequently enough, or it's too dangerous. But when we think about the learning experience as a much higher level, more holistic thing, we're really talking about not just the content, but we're talking about the way it's delivered, the way it's packaged, the way we take learning away from it. It's really a much more a holistic approach to the entire experience that a learner has. So what are the factors that become a part of that total experience? It's it's interesting because we've been focused a lot on quality and how that impacts things. And I think that the, the underlying principle is that we have a learning experience and that we are consumers and we're all very con- connected consumers these days. So when we're having any type of experience, we bring to that experience all of the expectations that we have that relate to all of our experiences with anything else. So, for example, I, you know, I have TV and I am used to seeing a level of quality in what I have in TV. And when I watch a show, I have an experience. When I'm on my phone and searching for things, I have an experience. They're all learning, but they're not targeted learning or formal learning in the same way that we think about the types of learning that we typically, you know, put out to our to our people that we really need to learn something. And so when I think of learning experience, I'm really thinking about every aspect, what it looks like, what it feels like, how long it is, how short it is, what I take away from it, how it's presented to me, the quality of the content within. It's really uh, everything that goes into it, how I get to it also is important to me. It's a total experience. And that can either be a great one or a not so good one. Yeah, this resonates with me. I I always map this kind of stuff back to the more universal or generic way we think about a brand, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A company, whether it's services or products, there is a brand. brand, And a brand is different than branding. Branding is a, a verb that we often associate with the the marketing type of stuff from the placement of our logo to to other things that feel presentational but the brand is the reputation you build it's the reputation you earn every day in every way so if you're let's say it's a software based thing and and a lot of curriculum we do they're really software products is it hard to get into 
how do they look and feel? Uh, how is the content? All that kind of stuff. I think that's what you're getting at. Am I correct? So yes, absolutely. I think that when we think of brand and we think about the way that we have positioned learning in the past, we're sort of in a new world. And I think it's very important to think about it as a brand. So I think as educators and trainers and providers that we have sort of had this very long-standing inability to really look at quality from the perspective of the consumer and their expectation. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them being that I think that we've never had the ability to really truly make beautiful designs because the tools were always expensive and that's falling away now. But I also think there's an element here that I want to explore that I think really what we're looking at is a rise in consumer expectation in a situation where we haven't ever had to have a real focus on the level of quality that we provide because budgets are small for training and education. We don't have a consumer market deciding not to buy our mandatory training. If we build it and they don't like it, we're still probably going to have to make them take it because we have never had the budgets that were large enough to really see how our learning products would compete in a consumer market. That really brings you down to ground truth. Does this have marketplace integrity and and goodness? You know, the curb appeal, honestly, how relative to other things that are best in class do our products stack up? And that's been a challenge for the L&D world, as you're, you're saying. You hit a couple of points in there as well. Another one was this idea of the democratization of tools. We have known for years what looks good. It's not like we're in a bubble. It's just that in our organizations, sometimes we don't have access to the production value. But a lot of that has changed and a lot of the field has been leveled. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I love that tools are so readily available now. But in some ways, I've always felt like these tools have almost removed the role of design for instructional designers right? Like everything all of a sudden got really easy to do and templatized. And we were so limited by the types of interactions that we could have with tools, but at the same time, ever expanding their true capability to create beautiful learning experiences that we sort of lost the bubble. And I feel like instructional designers are really now at the forefront of a movement where they can really let their strengths shine and it doesn't have to be incredibly expensive for them to be able to really do what they've always held true. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, templatization is essential and necessary, but it's like any other tool, it's something that has to be wielded very carefully. A template means that you've put all your hard work and design thinking up front and you've created something uh, usually it's something that's aesthetically pleasing and beautiful, the the way it works and feels. But after a while, you've got to keep that template up. You know, we see it every year with, you know, Apple releases new versions of its products, right? They they stamp out the the widgets, the molds and the, the tools, the template, if you will, gets updated. We have to do that with our learning as well so that we're, you know, we're keeping them fresh and they are evolving with those expectations that you were describing. Yeah, I I think one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, for those of you who weren't part of our private conversations ever, um, that I think is so interesting is still going back to your concept of brand. And when we think about, you know, companies like Apple, like when you see a new Apple product, it is undeniably Apple, right? Like there's a, a string that is pulled through that, people can use as part of their branding and their sentiment and their experience that doesn't have to be so templated that, you know, the logo always has to be in the upper right or however a lot of companies do do branding. But you said something really interesting yesterday about typography, and I don't want to disrupt us, but I thought that that was such an interesting thing about how these tools are now enabling us to do things that are so much more symbiotic with a good learning experience because our consumers have these expectations. Yeah, that kind of links back to the idea that many learning products online 
are textual. They are textually driven. My background is graphic design. I've worked as a creative director in the private industry, creating learning products for many, many years. And one of the foundational things in our world is the presentation of text. This kind of leads to, I have a saying, a thing that I like to say, you've heard it before, so this is not new to you, but I I have always thought it was the scandal of our industry that we use this term page turner as a pejorative or negative term. When I pick up a paperback novel or something else in the commercial world and it says taut, gripping, a page turner, you know, Kirkus Reviews, that kind of a thing, that is a high compliment for the textual content, the goodness and the engagement factors, right? No one's complaining that that Stephen King novel doesn't have enough pictures or things to click on, right? You're just mm-hmm. in the thrall of Mr. King, who he's large and in charge while you're reading it and you're immersed in an experience, back to that word experience. Mm-hmm. And in our products, it's kind of both. It's writing very well, uh, harnessing ISD. Uh, if you're a design-driven learning organization, then you are rooted in instructional design. But instructional design works best when we, we're not only drinking from our own well, we go out to the other wells that you're talking about, which is the stuff of the experience that we're trying to inform. At least this is how I, I read this. And you can correct me where I'm wrong, but the presentational value of our products is super important and a big part of what separates the commercial looking stuff from the homespun, unreadable things that are off-putting has to do with, with those factors. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't say it better. And it's, it's really a product of, I mean, when we, when we got all our news from radios, I wasn't alive then, but when we got all our news from the radio, we weren't concerned with how it looked, but that was the level of expectation that we had. I think that story is incredibly important as we move forward with what a total learning experience is. I think that scenarios can really drive home an incredible amount of parts. And, you know, when we talk about learning experiences, I know we've said before, you know, just because you're reading a story doesn't mean you're not engaged or you're not having an experience. You don't have to have a role in that story to be able to share in that level of engagement. But just as when we had radios, that was as good as it gets. And we all really appreciated it. Or when we read a book and it's a page turner, which is an incredible compliment. I think it's so interesting now that so much of it has gone to a perception of quality when we look at the aesthetics of something. And so let me, let me expand on that slightly. Um, I've been working on a briefing and the briefing is beautiful because I want it to have a really nice design. However, the content of the briefing is what's incredibly important, right? And when I give that briefing, I have to always do a printout version because I have to submit read ahead. And to do that printout version, I pretty much reduced down all of the wonderful elements of interactivity and connectedness of the design of the actual presentation experience. The content is the same, but the value proposition that comes between my printed out version and my fully delivered, you know, uh, beautifully moving connected version is incredibly quite different. And I think that that's something that we often forget. Content is always going to be king and stories and those things are always going to be so incredibly important. But now we're really moving into a stage where expectation has evolved from radio to black and white TV to, you know, somewhat shoddy looking MySpace. Let's not even talk about those little weird things to something that is really evolved in the aesthetic perspective. And I think we put perceived value on that in a way that can actually impact our learning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's like a three-legged stool now where you often can't get by on one thing. Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm reflecting back what you've said, yeah, content, when you come down to content and not to diminish the idea of aesthetics, but even if it's not pretty, if the content is compelling, that's most important, but the bar has been raised. And the idea is that presentation and usability and all these other factors, the good design aspects of those make your content more enjoyable and usable. Uh, I, I'm kind of loosely paraphrasing 
Steve Krug. Just, you know, as an aside in the usability world, mm-hmm. uh, if you remember way back in the day where we were starting to think about web usability, there was Jacob Nielsen. And then a little while later, there was the guy, Steve Krug, who came along with the book, Don't mm-hmm. Make Me Think. <laughs> now, Jacob Nielsen was from that they and they represented kind of actually not the opposite ends of the spectrum. Nielsen was more of the usability became a very sterile experience where presentation was kind of derided as something that just bogs everything down. Where Steve Krug came along a little later and said, "No, you know what? Good design makes usability more enjoyable, and it it helps people to access your content." So. I say this, I'm just laboring to make the point that it's not mere window dressing. It's not merely sprinkling sugar on thing. It is very integral to the content. They they work together hand in glove and one raises the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing these days. You know, I was reading a Forbes article the other day and it was the only thing moving quicker than technology is uh, consumers' expectations of technology, right? And so I think that's something we always have to have to keep in mind. But and not to begrudge the point, but in L and D and in you know our educational pursuits, we really have never had the opportunity to put quality sort of up front because we've always been so beholden to you know having to do homegrown efforts without the use of these now powerful tools and. I don't want people to forget that there is this third leg of the stool that is critically important. And and it's not just about, I mean, it is really just about the user expectation, but it's also about our perception of quality. And I think it's something you and I have talked about before also, Anthony, so forgive us listeners, we chat a lot. Um, it's the perception of quality in a way that I think is slightly different. I, I mentioned before that I think the perception of quality impacts the way that we learn things. And I just want to pull the string on that a little, if you don't mind, because I think it's an important part to make. Oh, yes. Great. So, you know, my time to me is very, very valuable. And when we look at content, we're often presented with a lot of things that we could probably access in other formats, right? And this comes down to, okay, why is this course pushing this content to me when really I'm much more interested in a performance aspect, like, you know, if I, I could go to YouTube in a moment and figure out how to do something if I needed to. And I don't necessarily agree that all courses have to include all information. I think that when we think about the learning experience and when we think about the perceived quality of the experience, it's going to be coming from what content is there, how it's presented to me, what it looks like, um, that total experience perspective, but also how much did I get out of it in the least amount of time possible, right? That how much of my time and my personal life was wasted going through things that I had access to in other ways that I couldn't get elsewhere. This is where curation and finding a better way, these may be common elements that can be found elsewhere, like you said, but putting it together in the right way giving a frictionless experience to borrow more Apple-isms, mm-hmm. you know, that whole idea that Apple wasn't the first to create what, what's really an MP3 player, but they created the experience, the, the whole ecosystem from acquiring music to installing it to enjoying it. They took all the sand out of the gears, and this is why others failed. This is why back then especially, you know, Microsoft just could not beat Apple because they were not making the human-shaped products and the <laughs> seamless experience between the things. Am I tracking with you? So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that tracks perfectly, because I think that more and more as we go back to the concept of basing our educational products on a basis of what experiences we have in the rest of the world, we know that there is this design element that comes into into the play, but we we also tend to forget what's available everywhere else. I know where to get the information that I need when I need it. What I could use help with more often than not is synthesizing that information, is translating that information into a performance aspect if it wasn't delivered to me that way, of understanding when and how and where to apply this information. And I think those are the elements of design as we move into a more performance-focused 
arena are going to be most important to consider when designing the content for our courses. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that point. And before we get into that performance and application of it, I, I wanted to hit one note that we, we spoke about offline, back to that point about perceptual quality. A lot of what is driving our concern to have great quality is our standing in the marketplace. How do we measure up? How in the mind of consumers do we compare? All that kind of stuff. There's a book by Al Reese called Positioning. He's the... Mm -hmm. He's very famous in marketing circles, but the idea of positioning, it's not, you know, from a business person standpoint, they're thinking uh, market share and things like that. But the positioning that Al Reese is putting a finer point on is the perceptual place that you occupy in the mind of the consumer, mm -hmm. right? So an example of this would be, you know, we all drink coffee every day. There is Starbucks and then there is Dunkin' Donuts. And people literally fall into camps. You know, it's almost tribal in that kind of thing. It's almost comical, you know. Uh, one day we're going to take up uh, spears and shields over our coffee. But the truth is they are different experiences. You know, Starbucks with their third place and they have great coffee, but it's also a place that you can stay. It's like an extension of your living room or workplace, depending on what you're doing there or a, or a meeting place. Dunkin' Donuts, not quite as much. So they occupy, and both, by the way, have good coffee. Where you know there, yeah. there's the trade-off of which you like better, and and subjective preference. But this idea of position in the mind of the consumer is this product or service lives here in my mind, and those live over there, or. Mm -hmm. vertically, you know, they're, they're kind of down here, but that other place, I perceive them as upmarket and better, and I'm willing to pay more for it. Or when I want to save money, this will be fine, you know. And in my own experience, I'm, I'm kind of a Starbucks guy, mostly because they're always the most convenient to me. I love the coffee, love that I can sit there, but I like coffee fundamentally. So yes, I will go to McCafe and Dunkin' Donuts who have, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who have studiously looked into the problem of Starbucks and figured out how they compete. And they, they did not make the mistake. And this is the thing. They did not make the mistake of trying to imitate Starbucks. They came up with their own position, which is a different place. So that's part of this perceptual thing. I just wanted to bring that to the table. Yeah, no, and I, I absolutely agree. But um, I think that there is a, or a perception of quality, a perceived quality that really does impact our trust and our perception of how seriously we should take something. If And I think that it's interesting because it is sort of similar to your coffee explanation, right? Like when I go to Starbucks, I probably somehow do expect a better cup of coffee than I'm going to get at McCafe because I'm having a better experience and because I'm paying more for it. And I know that I probably have just incited several tribes because they truly believe that McDonald's is a better cup of coffee and that, you know, Starbucks is sort of an experience that they might not be into. But when it comes to educational stuff, when it comes to the stuff that we're putting in front of others and expecting them to ingest, I think that it's pretty easy almost immediately to take a visual, completely purely aesthetic look at courseware and determine what value I should place on this training. Because if it doesn't look great, then I don't feel like someone has really invested enough time and effort. And I think that that's reflective of the importance of the content. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, think you're saying it, it, erodes, yeah. it erodes the trust and it undermines the confidence. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of the interesting thing. I think that, you know, it, it, you know, the things that are probably the most important to us, sexual harassment training, human trafficking training, all of those things, we tend to do the worst job at. And I think that that changes the way that we allocate brain space or attention to what we're supposed to learn. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I think about, you just bring up something like, what were the topics you just brought up uh, a moment ago? Sexual harassment, uh, sexual harassment and human trafficking. Human trafficking. Uh, so think about how, <laughs> how many times have we made the mistake – a topic like human trafficking. Ima imagine we were going to watch uh, 2020 or 60 Minutes and they were doing a, a, a special 
episode about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. You can just you can kind of know going in. You're going to hear the ominous sounding chords of music. Oh, yeah. You're going to see images of people. These are what they are doing is they are they're appealing to emotions. It's not emotionalism when you join mm-hmm. the emotional content. To, you know, right. In other words, it's like connecting the left and right hemispheres of the brain in a holistic way, engage with the material. Sure. We make a lot of mistakes that way. We often what we get is in this module, you'll learn, uh, you know, A, B, C, D and E and the eyes are glazed mm-hmm. over and we're just not connecting people to the material that way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to be, you know, exactly panic raisers or anything of that effect either. But there is a level of of importance that I know I place when I'm looking at something. I'll pay, you know, two dollars for something and I won't expect much from it. If I pay ten dollars for it, I'm gonna have a different expectation of it. And I will then place my you know, expectations moderate experiences. And uh that's an interesting little bit of research that I've always thought was so neat. Like if you if you expect a movie to be great but it's not great you will rate it lower than if you expected it to be bad and it's actually pretty good. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. That expectations really do moderate and color how we see everything. They absolutely do. Yeah, I'm the type who will, on the subject of movies, I'll I'll pay attention somewhat to the critics. I'm trying to get a, mm-hmm. a hunch as to whether it's good or bad. Still reserve my own thoughts about it. But you're right. Uh, there are a lot of times I'm like, this is the terrible movie I was told about. This is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, or 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 it can go in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's neat stuff. And then on your point of the price we pay for things, you know, the the price point a company sets for a, a good or service says an awful lot about the perceived value of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right now, so we're in this, by the way, a little sidebar that will bring us back to this point. We're in the midst of this coronavirus uh, COVID-19 concern. So all the more reason for Alicia to have a very, uh, you know, uh, intellectually intimate conversation from separate households, <laughs> right, uh, over over uh, telephonic technology, but uh, or voice over IP. But yeah, but mm-hmm. um in setting the price. So, you know, with COVID, people can't go to the movie theaters. And Man. I just went through this exercise of what we're talking about with the perceived value. So you can watch these movies at home, but the rental price, right? We're not talking yeah. about owning it. The rental price is really steep. It's like 20 bucks for- It's 20 bucks. 20 bucks to like, if you want to see a movie like The Invisible Man, which came out, by yeah. the way, I recommend it. I think everyone- should see it, see it, it. And, yeah. and there's a pun in there because you, you know he's invisible. But um, <laughs> twenty dollars, a lot of people are just saying, you know, a lot of what we're paying for when we go to the theater and we pay those ticket prices is the scale of the screen and the mm-hmm. now the leather reclining chairs and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of people think that they got the price point a little bit wrong, and it's they're going to have to uh, adjust that to be successful with people paying for new release movies. But just just an example of price point, perceived value, all that kind of stuff. And linking that back to, uh, to not to take us far afield, if your learning products don't display quality, uh, you do lose confidence and, and people don't buy into the content uh, or creates a barrier to that. Yeah. And, and that's the free stuff, right? I mean, this is, no one's paying for it, or I hope no one's paying for their sexual harassment well, it, well, time it's and, t- it's time though is yes, also the payment it's time yep you're, i'm paying like in honestly sometimes and it, i'm not speaking directly about my workplace but sometimes i have to take some mandatory training and when i'm done all i can think is i'm never getting that part of my life back like that part is gone forever and for what right it's just awful yeah, it can be tough. Now, on a positive note, I've been taking some compliance training, and I have seen where there's been improvement. Like at least they're the people who create those broad uh, compliance training products. You know, the mass, the mass consumed products. They they seem to be getting a little bit better mm-hmm. in some cases. Yeah, I think some people are doing it really well, and I think that some people are still a little behind. But I think that we're going to see 
a lot of the quality increase as we move forward, at least I hope so. But, you know, I think that as L&D professionals, we, we do need to keep our eye on not just the cost of production, but the, the loss of human life that we are spending taking these things. And I think we need to be far more intelligent in the way that we design these in order to properly motivate and evoke the the actual learning that we want. Like I, I know for me, it really doesn't matter to me what year a sexual harassment law was uh, made official, right? That's not the point of a lot of the training I take, but I feel like those are the types of questions I get asked and it's infuriating. It really is. So th- this is good. This kind of brings us a little focused more on what is the learning experience. We've been t- kind of talking a- around it. I-, I did want to give some frame of reference in terms of the marketplace value of things. But when you look at the focus of your content, right right there, you're identifying how perhaps our objectives should be consistent with what really needs to be assessed, what performance needs to be reinforced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's all about performance. And that's why games and simulations have kind of been my thing, right? Because they really are truly performance-focused. And at DAU, we certainly don't build any games that don't have that experiential nature in that they always have the ability for you to situate into a situation, to practice uh, a piece of skill or knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to. And so that has always sort of been the, the residing factor for me. And I've been lucky, but now that we're actually in this interesting environment where we have the ability to further pull that string. I would love to see more content revised uh, revised into a performance focus as opposed to a truly knowledge focus as I think our expectations increase and our time demands in our other lives continue to increase as well. I think that education opportunities are getting smaller and shorter and they need to be more refined. Yeah, they really do. I think um, it's relevance, right? And the the ability mm-hmm. to identify with the material. And I have, that's my theory of engagement, whether we're looking for entertainment things or the learning. We're always trying to see ourselves in it. We're trying to achieve identification. And I think in learning products, we're trying to project ourselves into the performance and see ourselves in it. And that I think that is such a big benefit of games and simulation where you're literally practicing the content. Absolutely. And, you know, we know from research, market research indicates that what people are really looking for in these experiences are hyper-personalized, incredibly relevant experiences. It has to be what I need, when I need it, where I need it, because otherwise I could probably get it from somewhere else. Now, you know who does a really great job of um, the performance focus? My favorite book. It's actually sitting next to me on, on the couch. A previous guest of yours. Uh, I've actually, I love all of your guests. I certainly, I've always been a big fan of the people that you bring in. But I think one person right now who is completely getting it right, and when I say right now, she's been getting it right for years, uh, and she continues to get it right, and I think her book is more relevant than ever, is uh, Julie Dirksen. What's, what's the name of the book? It's called, uh, Design for How People yeah, Learn. Yeah, Design for How I People Learn. I have that about 10 paces away also. Oh, my gosh. I've got so many little ratty marks. I've been you know, pulling out little references to it and some courseware that I've been building this week. And I think that she just has such a down-to-earth, I mean, she's so smart, and she knows I'm a big fan of hers. And uh, I think it's just such an accessible way for us to really refocus the way that we've been planning content for so long. I wish that I could download a version into the heads of everybody that I work with today and forever, and that we could all share this foundational understanding of how performance relates to the types of things that we really need to get out of our educational experiences now. Yeah, she's terrific. And and just while on this couple of points, uh, there are three episodes where I interviewed Julie Dirksen. Um, so if, if you enjoy this type of conversation around these things and some of the theory and others of it, she's wonderful to talk to, but you'll find those out there. For me, the one of the biggest kind of pull quotes or takeaways from Julie Dirksen's work, and it, it goes to experience, is that she found – and she has said that L&D, sometimes you're not finding the answers in the body of knowledge proper 
with L and D, right? So it's this idea of you can't exclusively be drinking from your own well all the time. Sure. It's the problem, you know. It's a problem of specialization as well, as opposed to all of us trying to be somewhat of a generalist, reading widely going out to other wells. She does that with brain science and mm-hmm. games is another area. Uh, she's looking at commercial games in the marketplace that has informed how you present material to learners, bring them to that point of frustration, maybe let them coast a while, let them then have them level up and all these kinds of things. These are not ideas that originated in L&D, but it's if you pay attention to what she's bringing, I think it can improve your ex- the experience of your products. As would be expected. She has created in her book an approach to instructional design that I wish we could all use, and not in the same way that Stephen King creates a page turner, in the way that, you know, this is actually, she, she writes a book about how people learn, and she actually applies how people learn within the book. I mean, so simple, so brilliant. Yeah, it's a good book. It's in its second edition from New Riders, if anyone's looking for that. so I don't have the second edition. I'm, I don't want to give up my first oh, edition, you have the, so I'm going to have to see what's different. You got the blue book? No, I have the yellow one. Is the yellow one the second That's one? The, you got the latest and greatest. And the only difference oh, in them, if, you ha- if anyone out there has the blue book, it's been around for close to a decade, but the blue book, the yellow book adds a few chapters. So it's really just literally been appended with new stuff. So... You've got most of the second edition in the blue book. Excellent. So before this slips my mind, we had a great sidebar in our conversation yesterday about Trader Joe's. We have a mutual colleague who I won't call her out, but her first name begins with the letter Desi. And um, so (laughs) (laughs) she's great. So she posted a video, which I thought was invaluable. And a lot of people reacted to who have similar vantage points as us looking at L&D and experience. Anyway, it's a terrific video about Trader Joe's, the brand and the experience Uh, of shopping in mm -hmm. their stores, the products that they offer, and it furnishes many lessons. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think it's so interesting. Uh, you know, it is, as you said, it's almost like going to a farmer's market, right, with, with the chalkboards. And I think it's so interesting because it's a chain. They're everywhere. Everyone has a Trader Joe's. But and it's not that they have homogenized this experience down to something that isn't meaningful. But it really does, I think, speak to the level of detail that their shoppers expect from them. Their shoppers have a different expectation. A lot of times their shoppers aren't paying a whole lot more for what it is that they need. And I think that they serve a, a particularly healthy market and have a lot of vegan, those sorts of options that have sort of created their, their own little cult following. But for the general masses who just go to the grocery store on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, their, their stuff is reasonable, but they've created a very different experience. And I think what's so interesting about what they do is I think it demonstrates, much like Apple, much like all of the big brands, their ability to truly brand something and not just in branding, but to be a brand that has expressed a level of quality throughout all of their assets. Every store that you go to Trader Joe's is generally going to have these affordances that you can rely on, right? That you're going to put your card on one side, that the people at the front desk are going to be wearing tropical shirts and they're going to be friendly. And I think that that really speaks to how they have distributed their model, you know, to an extremely large population. And I think there are lessons that we can learn from that. Yeah, it really is. And it's a great example because one of the hallmarks of Trader Joe's is like, it looks like you're at kind of this quasi- farmer's market, very homespun looking. They've got the hand-drawn chalkboard looking things or the signage looks very handcrafted and all of that kind of thing. And But the, you know, the reality is if you walk I, – I, this came to me when I took a trip down to Florida a couple of years ago and I hit a couple of Trader Joe's on the way and it's just a reminder that you know this is all crafted – very centrally at the corporate level, you know, the same way, you know, that Apple has a control freakish focus on their, their mm-hmm. product quality at the mothership. You have to retain 
that type of sensibility where, again, back to templatization, there's a lot of goodness in distributing sometimes some of the means of production or the points of distribution, but you have to craft it very carefully at the mothership. There, there is a, uh, not to sound socialistic here, but it's, there's a lot of central planning <laughs> going on in, a, in terms of a, a brand, you know, where you, you do, con, you, yeah. you, you do, you do craft it that way. Yeah. So I think that, I think that that's what's super interesting about the way Trader Joe's has, and a lot of the other companies we see, such as Apple, such as all the big guys who are really succeeding in their market segments really have put an incredible focus on quality, but not just quality, consistent quality, quality across their products that still does tie back to their mothership brand. Like I can only imagine, you know, that, that there's another world that I will probably never get to be part of where you have an art director and you have an entire team of people who are only focused on user experience and really honing in what experience you want to have and then doing such a good job of actually providing that experience too. It's it's amazing. It's totally true. Uh, Donald Norman is the author of The Design of Everyday Things. That's a classic book. A lot of people have heard of it. It's the book where the cover has a, a picture of a water pitcher or tea pitcher with the ha- handle and the spout on the same side, right? An uh, oh. <laughs> obvious design flaw. So, but one of the things to your point that I got from Donald Norman in an interview once is that design is not a democracy. Okay. Uh, it is. It, and this flies in the face of, you know, we think uh, this is not f- fair play and, and sharing, but the truth is if we look around, we have people who are called directors. We have creative directors. We have film directors. We uh, have, right. We look at how fighter jets fly. They fly in formation, right. Mm-hmm. You have to have a direction and you have to have a vision that everything else gets unified to. That is a very central, um, a little bit autocratic way of doing those things. But you don't get a Trader Joe's. You don't get an Apple. You don't get the best in class products and services without that tight control and, and not giving over the reins at the local level in an example of Trader Joe's. And that's a lesson for learning developers. What are your thoughts? Do do you agree with that? Yeah. You know, and I think that, I think it's so interesting because I think it all all circles back to what we're saying about uh, learning and developers really not having the ability to get consumer involved. But I think, you know, when we think about the video games industry, for example, for every Fortune 500, I mean, for every Fortune 500, for every game that we see on your Xbox or that's available for that, there's probably between a 100 and a 1,000 companies who went out of business because they created a game that just didn't make it. And that's how the market has driven quality, right? Uh, only the best survive. We've never had to really compete in that market as at least the internal L&D developers. That's never been our reality. And I think more than ever, it is. And I think that the things that we're seeing that consumer companies are doing to control quality, and it doesn't have to be a huge team, but you know, the involvement of creatives in a way that we haven't previously involved them is more important than ever. And everyone's a part of the creative team. I It's another thing I, I try to keep in mind that there isn't necessarily a dichotomy of mm-hmm. people totally. Everyone has input into that product, your subject matter experts, yeah. your management, all of that is part of it. But in execution, there is the dichotomy and the and then the directing of it, mm-hmm. all those things, that becomes a talent assignment challenge to really fine execution and then distribution and then figuring out, okay, where can we kind of distribute aspects of this and where do we not do that? So that's the thing to figure out. Yeah, we are all part of that creative process, but just like an entire orchestra is all part of the music, there is still someone standing there waving that little wand, whatever it is they do, forgive me, musicians, that brings it all together in the right way. And when we're 
you know, if we're creating one-off, then great, whatever. Uh, do the best that you can. But when we're creating series and when we're creating multiple things, there does have to be some sort of guidance on not just the level of quality, but the level of experience and the level of perceived quality that is going to be the string that connects it all. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, kind of the uh, orchestration and the conductor in that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Another little uh thing I, I a saying that I love just on this point of really giving attention to quality and a unifying vision is that saying about how a horse by committee is a camel, right? You you just you you, you can't <laughs> Right. You, 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 you have to have a singular vision and, and focus on how you're designing your products. And not everyone is a part of that vision, even though everyone, everyone's a part of it, but everyone has to fly in alignment to what is the vision of quality. No, absolutely. <laughs> Never heard that one. So another thing that I think is interesting that I think as you know, we've always designed for the masses. We've always had to sort of consider what the lowest common denominator of our user is, either with technology or with information. You know, we're teaching to the one who knows the least, so we've always had to include a lot more information. But when it comes to quality, I think that one of the tough things that we are going to be looking into the future at is that quality is incredibly personal. Quality is your perspective. And we're trying to baseline, at least I'm trying to baseline, the expectations that I believe our users will come to this with based on their consumer experiences. But there's always going to be those people who still want it the old way. I think as humans, we're sort of engineered to teach the way we were taught. And uh, some of us even want to learn the way that we've always learned. And I think that that is a hurdle that we're going to have to overcome, especially when we're looking to design for higher quality, but not exactly meeting all of the desires or expectations of our entire community. Yeah. Are you talking about how you can't be necessarily enslaved by customer expectations? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit about designing for the fringes. That's Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That could, I was thinking like um, the innovator's dilemma, uh, the Clay Christensen mm-hmm. stuff. He just passed away, by the way. Um, oh. But that idea of, you know, it, it goes back to like, you know, uh, Ford. Uh, if I was just giving my customers what they wanted, I would have been working on a faster horse, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, yeah. or the famous example of, you know, Steve Jobs took away all the buttons on the the phones, you know, uh, we, we weren't expecting that. But the thing you're talking about also, I think it speaks to how in previous generations, right, where we didn't have, we didn't live in a Google world where every bit of knowledge has been atomized and referenceable and accessible. Mm-hmm. We would make average stuff for average people. Yeah. This is one of Seth Godin's famous themes. And if you visualize a normal curve, you know, you just kind of aimed at that big middle with mass media, mm-hmm. create your commercials for paper towels and toothpaste, <laughs> and you pitch average stuff to average people, where now people are willing to spend outlandish sums of money on products that, uh, you know, they might be common otherwise, but they have some twist on it that creates the perceived value. Absolutely. Yeah. And the tools play into that, the, our ability to tailor experiences, right? So the tailoring mm-hmm. is that function of instead of aiming at the middle, it allows you to target the extremes, the outer edges of that bell curve. So, yes, and when we think about it, it almost gets back to, to Bob Mosher's five moments of need, because along with all of those elements, I think that the the need, the relevance, that entire perspective is going to color the quality rating or the perceptual quality that we would assign to it. Exactly. You know, and, and to translate that further, I'm thinking, tell me if I'm tracking with you mm-hmm. to think of that normal curve and average stuff for average people. We've been creating average learning for average people, and it's taken like one monolithic form, which is e-learning in a uh, electronic book metaphor, which uh, requires you to go from A to Z. And it's one kind of a, a experience or, or tunnel that we all go through, where with the Bob Mosier 
model and and helping us understand how we can create different kinds of elements that cater to different moments of need. There are five moments and that moment of apply, but Mm-hmm. We can famously, if you if you're trying to crash land a, a plane, that's not the time to take the course. It's the time to reference some esoteric thing about your Boeing aircraft in a job aid, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You need yeah. If you're trying to land the plane, you really need something quick. Just like you know, changing the the filter on my refrigerator. I I could and I have. I did once. But the first time I had to change the filter of my fridge, I uh, went to the fridge producer's website and looked up, you know, the instructions and found the filter that I needed. I had the filter, found how to do it, and it gave me uh, a listing of how to do it. But it was so obscurely referenced, and I'm not talking about learning styles that I need to see it in order to understand it. It was just so obscurely like, and then twist this part, but nothing, you know, I had no idea what part that was. I go to YouTube in two seconds. I've changed my filter, and I, I don't ever need that training again because now I know how to change my own filter. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it, it's the 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 ubiquity of of information and our ability to get performance guided information really is transform transforming the way that we teach and present information. Yeah, and and then you think about the specificity of format where you would have been struggling with a wire diagram and technical specs. Oh, Here you got a video where it's it's sort of like learned by watching and uh, having someone show you it's spatial and it's motor skills and things like that. I had the same thing. I had a, uh, my refrigerator break down at like three in the morning and everything was warm and I just couldn't oh. go to bed that way. And I found my exact model. It was an Amana refrigerator, which was known for having just a block of ice form between the freezer at the bottom, which channels air up to the top. Oh, yeah. And so and then I learned the joy of taking things apart and oh, yeah. blow drying and chipping away until I could dislodge it. But I got it from YouTube, you know, very quickly. I mean, sometimes I even find myself fast forwarding YouTube because sometimes I get a little wordy at the beginning when I need something. And I'm like, no, just get to the stuff get to the stuff. I swear if Ikea went to YouTube, our entire, like we would have so much nice furniture Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be falling apart every time we had to move, of course, because it's Ikea and we couldn't follow those instructions. And they do a great job with the instructions. I mean, they've created their own empire out of the concept that we live in teeny places and we need affordable furniture. And they, they didn't do a great job in the concept that we live in teeny places and at some point during our lives, we might need to move that furniture because I don't know if you know this, but once you've put together something from Ikea, you never take it apart. I don't even know if you should. I don't oh, know like, it, who would it, do that. It depends. I, I've become good at, at semi-disassembling and putting it back together. And, really? Yeah, making sure I don't stress out the connectors and stuff. So you, you can you can do it. It's doable. But but no, I, I, I've I, never I, attempted. Yeah, I hear you. But you know what? That brings another thought. Like, again, this is almost like this is a picture of how we choose our learning. You go to YouTube in a moment of need, right? And what do you do? You're often, at least if you're like me, you're looking first for the shorter one because you think someone, uh-huh. someone said the same thing more efficiently. And there may be one that's three times as long for some reason, right? And, of but, and then you go to the shorter one, and then what happens? It's like, oh, it's terrible. It's unhelpful. And then you're like, okay, I, I need the longer one, right? So, th- But this is a good example of perceived value and expectations and, and all of that. And moments of need. <laughs> and, you know, it's amazing uh, if you're familiar with the whole ASMR trend of videos. Uh, have you heard of that? No, no, no. Okay, well, look it up. And uh, not that I have personal experience, I'm just observing this for a friend. <clears throat> but um, no, it's <laughs> these are it's uh, this uh, a big, big, massive trend. And you've got like very young people, like 19 year old girls, who produce these videos, and they have millions and millions of views. Oh yeah, and it's become a little cultural thing to the point that now they make parody videos with celebrities mm-hmm. speaking in ASMR whispers and tapping. And if that helps clue you in, that's, that's the kind of behavior on these videos. But huh. the, my point that I'm, I'm getting to is that in a very short span, I have seen how a lot of young producers and small budget little peanut outfits at some point you see them take the leap if you have the production eyes for it you'll see that they're no longer just speaking into their iPhone video camera 
now they they've got a little setup with a backdrop they bought maybe oh, yeah. a, a high definition camera and a lighting rig and and it looks a lot more professional we know from studies that the higher the definition, the more intimate and connected we feel to the subject matter. Sure. Uh, especially with video. Video is not really – I don't like the word screens. Video is a, an illusion that's like a window where you're seeing other people mm-hmm. and you're identifying strongly. I don't know if I made the point earlier, but that I think is what works very strongly with the games and simulation is just connecting and identifying. I think I did say it, but that's how it all works. So. Anyway, yeah, I'm tying a lot of concepts together, but production value matters, the tools are democratized, and, and we see that all happening in the, the real world. So, you know what I love about these? I love that it's, I feel like these are less of an interview and more of a conversation that other people would want to hear. Right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Funny. I'm trying to do the, uh, like, it's like a talk that you want to be a fly on the wall with. Exactly. I love that. I think this is coming off exactly like that. Conversation that others would want to hear. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to hear us? <laughs> and you know what's cool? What I love about this, this is going to be a long-form interview, mm-hmm. which you know, that's okay. Like in a world where people start parroting this idea that everything has to be two minutes long with, mm-hmm. with at least with, there's something particular about audio where people do their own capricious chunking and it's called hitting the pause button and picking it up later. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm huge on that. <laughs> yeah, me <I'm> too. <laughs> Especially now it's hard to even keep up with a list of favorite podcasts. It's just uh, not enough time. I hear you. See, that depends. That's another thing. Like like this podcast is longer. And what I like about a longer form show is it lets people take the time. It gives you the space to think through it. Mm-hmm. But other times you want to be efficient. It's like the way Carl Kopp uh, caveated microlearning, saying how sure. it's great. It's not for everything, though. It's not for deep learning. You know, deep learning still requires time and space. Agreed. Yeah. So this has been really wide ranging. We've been kind of all over the map in, in a good way. You know, these this is an authentic kind of conversation where we're kind of bouncing off of each other. But yeah. if I had to summarize it and kind of put all that we've said into a a little bit of a structure, I think we're saying that quality is perceptual, right? It's a function of expectations expectations for the quality of the content, mm-hmm. the aesthetic of it, the relevance. And if the, I think the efficiency, it's no longer than it has to be normally. That helps. Yeah. It's also personalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, personalization, we're getting a little bit of a leg up now with technology through AI and adaptive. Those are helping us. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think just the ease of use, that frictionless experience. Uh, I think you add this together, you get the total quality experience that learners are looking for. What are the thoughts do you have, Alicia, as we wind down? Yeah, no, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that listing. And I think that that as we really look into the future of how we design and how we position our learning, that we really do have to raise the bar that now is the time because technology has made it so easy to do that and that we really need to use every every single tool in the toolbox. But that we can never forget that designers, and I don't mean instructional designers, I think that they are critically important instructional designers, but I mean designers in general are more important than ever because they're the ones that are going to help create the experiences. And as I've said in so many other things that, you know, if your experience isn't memorable, then nobody's learned anything, right? Because then they don't remember it. And I think that the the more we can employ what we know, and all of the great theories and all of the great work of others, the more memorable we can make all of our learning. I don't think I can improve on that statement. So I'm just going to thank you for your time today, Alicia, Dr. Sanchez, whoever you are. <laughs> and uh, and I hope to have you back again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your thoughts. No, thank you so much for, for taking the time with me. I really enjoyed this. And thanks for anyone listening. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate the audience. We hope this helps somebody out there. We're just trying to think through this stuff and hope you can join along with us. So thank you, everyone. Awesome. So until next time, this is Anthony for The Learning Circle. 
Talk to you soon, friends. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University. Thank you.